continuing here, finishing up actually, our series through selected portions of Revelation. And we started this as our Advent series, looking to the first coming of Jesus, but recognizing that it was, it was a precursor to a second coming. And that Advent season is really looking to that second coming. We, we find a little bit, there, there certainly is more in chapter 21 and 22, more explanation of this picture of the way that things end. And, uh, and it's significant. And I invite you, I actually encourage you as you go home uh, to, to read through the rest of chapter 21 and 22 and to allow it to engage your imagination, which is so much of what Revelation does, these visions that the Lord gives us. This, this imagination engaging opportunity to see how things end and see that it has implications for us. And we're going to talk this morning and, and hopefully see the great hope that these promises give us even now. I, I am almost finished with the wing feather saga, which is uh, maybe best young adult uh, novels. There's four novels in it. It's adventure, fantasy, and it's written by a guy named Andrew Peterson, who's also a musician. Uh, and I've really enjoyed the books. I'm almost finished. And it it's, it's actually was a little bit surprisingly intense for, uh, for maybe the age that I thought it was aimed at, right? Like, it's, there's some dark stuff in there. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of moments where it was like, can we just get, like, a little bit of breather? They, they move. There, there's the, the wing-feather children. Uh, that uh, are the heroes of the story, Janner and Tink or Kalmar and Lily and their mom, Nia, and their grandfather, Poto. And they have all these adventures in this, uh, in this world where they are uh, moving toward an end. You know the whole time that you're reading the book that it's moving toward a particular end. So as, as you're in these moments of incredible intensity, you're like, there is no way out of this situation. There is a way out. And you know that because it's a book written by Andrew Peterson. And uh, if you're familiar with Andrew Peterson, I mean, he, he, he's a little bit, I mean, he's, he's a follower of Jesus. And he has this worldview, this biblical understanding of the way that the story that God has given us works. And so he's, he's writing similarly to C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. And you read those stories and you, you know uh, that they're moving toward a particular end where things are, are made right. You don't know exactly how, and you know that there's going to be a lot of mess, and not everybody's going to make it and all that, but, but you have this general sense that that's the direction that it's headed. And so you can have hope in the midst of it, that even as you're in this moment, that it feels like there is no answer for this mess that they're in, uh, you, you can have hope, because you know about the author, and you know the direction that they're headed. And all three of those guys that I just mentioned, they write, and they talk explicitly about the fact that the stories that they have written are just reflections of what Tolkien calls the, the ultimate and the true fairy story. Not fairy stories that it's not true. It's very true, the gospel story, and that it ends with glory and restoration and all things made right. All of those guys write uh, with those thoughts in mind. And so as we come here to the end of Scripture, this, this book that we believe is all one big story that is real and true— we, we come to the end that hasn't yet happened, and we can allow it to affect our lives here and now as we look forward to it and wait for it and live in light of it, but with great hope. I, I want to just kind of give a little bit of an aside and reference last 
uh, last week's sermon because verse eight, I, include, I went ahead and include, like I thought about not including verse eight because it brings up questions about judgment and, uh, and evil and brokenness and, and those kinds of things in, in ways that we really went in depth more last week. Uh, and my encouragement is we're not going to be able to, just for the sake of time, be able to dive into verse eight and the fact that, that judgment is God's justice in dealing with evil and brokenness in this world. Uh, I encourage you to, you can listen on the website to last week's sermon. That's not going to give you all the answers. That's not what I'm saying. I'd love to talk with you. Uh, but we just don't have time to dive deeply into all, every aspect of this passage. But I just want to recognize it. And I kept it in here. I thought, well, do I include that in the reading? And it's part of scripture. It's a part of the story. And it's actually good and beautiful. And all of scripture is there for a reason. And so I think it's helpful to note that it is reminded that it is God dealing justice against the evil and brokenness in this world. And that's part of him and the promises that he brings to make all things right, to restore all the broken things. And what we find here is that there is a, a future promise. There's a promise for what is to come. That's the first point. And the second point is that that brings promises for right now. That that has implications and promises for the way that we live life at this very moment. So let me pray as we dive in. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to the hope that you offer and the promise of what is to come. And help us understand its implications for right now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There is a promise for the future here. And the first thing that we see is that it is a, a promise of really perfection. The, the Hebrew word, the biblical word here would be shalom where all things are right. It's flourishing of God's creation. and it's, it's creation operating exactly as it was designed to operate. And we know, we, we read a book like the Wingfeather Saga or the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and we, we sit in the mess and we like it because we know that our own lives are messy and broken and we, we long for something to be fixed, right? That, that we look around and we say that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And, and so here we find this hope that there's something different that is to come. The end actually makes all things right. That as we look around and say things are not the way that they're supposed to be, that there's the promise that one day they will be. This verse 1 picture of the new heaven and the new earth coming, and coming to this place and enveloping this place is the hope that things will be made right, that they will be fixed. And it's a fulfillment of many Old Testament promises. We see very specifically promises from Isaiah 65 and 66 fulfilled here in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and it, there is very much a, a reference to, a, a calling back to Genesis 1, verse 1, which is actually where we'll be next week. We're going to do a significant rewind very end here. Next week, we're going back to Genesis 1, a series in creation. That's what, that's what starts next week. And, and we'll talk about heaven and earth. What, what, we, we, we understand earth a little bit better. Earth is just this globe on which we live. It's the physical world. It's the things that we experience, we touch, we taste, we, we uh, have opportunity to engage this earth. Heaven is used in a few different ways. In scripture, it can just be used to describe sometimes the sky and the birds fly in, in the heavens. It can be used to describe, you know, beyond the sky, the stars and, and the sun and the things that we, we see out there. But it's also used to describe where God is. It has this very spiritual connotation of heaven is where God is present, reigning and ruling. And I think 
that this sometimes the, the blending of them together, Eugene Peterson tells us that sometimes we don't have clarity. Now, in some context, we, we can see very clearly how the word is being used, but sometimes it comes without exact clarity on which use is being uh, employed in that particular passage, but that what Peterson argues is that actually brings, while bringing less clarity, it brings more comprehension. And what he's saying by that is it helps us understand that there is this constant togetherness of the spiritual and the physical world. That sometimes we recognize that as we think about heaven and its connotations of the sky, it's part of the physical world that can be measured and touched, that it also includes the spiritual world. And that those things are not separate. We find that throughout scripture. That, that is a, a Gnostic idea that has creeped into the church in very significant ways, that, that the spiritual and the physical are separate, that the sacred and secular are completely different things. But what we find throughout scripture in God's good creation, we'll talk a lot about this in our creation series, that those things are they fit together so that when we see this promise of the new heaven and the new earth, that is the whole cosmos, everything that you are and experience and are a part of, that it is all going to be made right. It is all going to be perfected, that there's not one thing that's going to be left out. And it's not just this spiritual, okay, you and your relationship with Jesus or you and your sin or are you getting to heaven? No, it's so much bigger than that. The promise here is so much bigger than that. The whole of the cosmos is going to be fixed. So like, it's, it's hard for us to even get our minds around this, even to engage our imaginations in this way. Again, Revelation invites us again and again to engage our imagination. Think about what is the thing, if you could, if you could pick one thing in this world, it could be a big thing. One thing that you could fix in this world, what, what might it be? And maybe you think about something for yourself, like my own mental state or my own emotions that I'd like to fix or this own, my own relationship in this particular situation that, that you have experienced is beyond fixing for you. But maybe you thought about something much bigger. I'd like to fix racism. I'd like to fix polarization. I'd like to fix world hunger, or poverty, or the opioid crisis. I mean, we could go on and on and on listing things that are so big that we can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to fix one of those things, right? And there are people engaged in trying to deal with those very things, and, and rightfully so. And many in this, we're engaged in that in different ways, each one of us, trying to see goodness and justice and health move forward. But we recognize that we're not going to fix any of those things. But let's imagine that you can just fix one of them. Then you're still left with all the other things. You fix racism, it's done. We still have poverty and hunger and polarization. And we, we have uh, emotional unhealth and mental problems and suicide. Like it just, you, you pick one of those and you still have a whole list of things that are not right. And what we find here is this promise that God is going to fix all of them. The heavens and the earth, the whole of the cosmos is going to be made new so that as we find ourselves in this moment where Romans 8 tells us that all of creation, all of creation, not just our spiritual cells, all of creation is crying out, groaning because it's been subjected to corruption. And here is a promise that, that God is in this moment reflected here in Revelation 21. He's going to fix those things, all of it. It's a bigger picture than we often think of when we think about salvation. And it is salvation. 
but it is him making all things right. The new Jerusalem, so starts verse 1, new heavens, new earth. It's then the picture is the new Jerusalem. And the rest of chapter 21 is describing this new city, right? There's a lot that we could learn about the fact that it's a city. I think it's, it's helpful to note that it's, you know, we don't just go back to the garden. I, ideally, creation would have moved forward without the fall. It would have moved, moved to cities, but they would have been perfected, right, without the brokenness. And so we have this city that is the, the picture of all things made right. And Jerusalem in particular. Now, Jerusalem has a lot of significant history with the people of God, but it was a mess. And John, the one seeing this vision to begin with, and the churches that he communicated these visions to in the very beginning would have understood the mess of Jerusalem. This is what Eugene Peterson says about the fact that it's the new Jerusalem, this very specific place. And not only a city, but the city of Jerusalem, a cramped thousand-year-old city, quite without splendor. True, there had been moments of great worship and great preaching, great temple building, and great revelation here. But the accumulation of stories among a biblically informed people made it intractable to idealization. This was the city that David captured from the pagan Jebusites and then dishonored with adultery and murder. This was the city that became infamous for its child sacrifices and unlawful sorceries. This was the city that mocked the saintly integrity of Jeremiah and turned a deaf ear to the powerful preaching of Isaiah. This was a city twice destroyed by judgment. First by God-directed armies of Babylon, later by the Christ-prophesied Roman soldiers under Titus. And then Jesus comes and he says, would that even today you knew the things that make for peace. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who were sent to you. These are the words of Jesus about this city. Isn't this the most unlikely of cities to serve as a model for heaven? Yet here it is. The reason that that is hopeful for us is it's this reminder that God takes what is a mess, an absolute mess, and he makes it right and good and beautiful and perfect. Behold, verse 5, I am making all things new even the messy city, Jerusalem. So that it is a city that then he is with them, his presence is with them, and then he will, verse four, wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is one of those passages that I I love, but I can only begin to imagine what it would actually be like. No more tears and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No more death, no more crying, no more pain. All things made perfectly right. Again, because of the brokenness of the world in which we live and the brokenness of our own hearts, we can't even imagine what this will be like. And yet this is the promise. No more chaos or brokenness. This idea of verse one, the sea was no more, is is not that there won't be waters and bodies of water. This is the sea as the picture from Daniel 7 of chaos and catastrophe. This is actually the the promise of justice that comes in verse 8, is all of the evil and brokenness and injustice will be done away with completely. That is the, the promise of what he is doing because, ultimately, because his presence will be with his people. Verse 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The tabernacle, God 
living with his people. This is the goal. This is the implication played out in more detail in the rest of chapter 21 and into 22, the river of life, the new Jerusalem, the, the, the explanation of what that will look like in God being present with his people and shining forth his glory so that there's not even need for the sun. This is the promise of God's presence with his people. And it will be there completely, perfectly experienced by his people in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the promise for you and for me. But it's not just something to come. Heaven isn't just this thing that we're waiting for. And we can't wait until I get there. There is this promise of heaven come to earth in Jesus already. That first Advent, Christmas celebration, heaven come to earth in Jesus. Not yet completely fulfilled, but there is a promise of the experience of his presence even now. I mean, again, the story of scripture from the very beginning in the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. And that relationship was broken. But very quickly, God began to implement ways for him to be with his people, for his presence to be experienced. And, and we find a few years ago, we, we preached, I preached through Leviticus and we saw that this, these weird laws and systems, of sacrificial systems set up. It was all set up so that the people and all of their brokenness can actually be in relationship with Yahweh, that personal name for God who wants to be their people and to be him to be their God. This relationship that is offered. And, and, and that grows. So it, it is the tabernacle that travels with them as they go. But then it's the temple in Jerusalem. That didn't last very long because the people of God are like us. They forget quickly and they turn to other things, right? And yet God continues to be faithful and to pursue. And so Jesus comes. God's presence here on earth with the people and then, beyond that, the promise of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit with every person who is a part of the people of God. In our hearts, the promise of the presence of God, all moving toward this moment where we, we see this vision of what it will be like in the future, this vision, again, that we can't even fully comprehend, but we're invited to engage our imaginations in perfect relationship with the Creator. This is what we're moving toward, but even now we are able to experience it, even now in this place. So there is, as we saw before, with the new heavens and the new earth, all things made right, the evil and brokenness done away with, there is, we talk about a discontinuity there. There's something new and better and different, and yet there's also a continuity. So it's not just this place destroyed and done away with, brokenness and evil, yes, burned up in, a, in, in fire in that sense, cleansed, but this place made new. The new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem come here to this place. He cares about a place. He, he mentions Jerusalem in particular because he does care about place, even in all of its mess. And so there is a continuity that exists, this new creation. We, we get a picture of that in 1 Corinthians 15 as it talks about the resurrection and the promise for each of us that we will experience resurrected bodies. And there is something very new but there is also a continuity that people will be recognized, that will know one another. There is something that continues. 2 Corinthians 5 describes this even now, each of us now, in this moment, as new creations in Christ. And this is not the picture of creation from, Ephesians, I mean, sorry, from Genesis 1, where God makes the world, the cosmos, out of nothing, described as uh, theologians, the, the Latin term ex nihilo, from nothing, this is, he's, he's taking and restoring 
what is and making it right and new and better. Verse five, behold, I'm making all things new. His words are trustworthy and true. He says that. He says, this is a big deal, verse five. Write these things down for these words are trustworthy and true. He's already said, I'm making all things new. And then he says, it is done. He's giving him a vision of what is to come. I'm making all things new. That's in the present tense. This is happening now. And then he says in verse six, it's done. And then he gives his credentials. I'm the alpha and the omega. The first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Highlights it again. I'm the beginning and the end. He is the one we know from Colossians 1 that all things were created by him and through him and for him. He is at the center of it all. He is that creator. And he is saying, I am doing this. It is done. You can have complete confidence in this. But it's, it's happening now as well. We, we tend to think of, of heaven often in the church as just this thing to come. I've shared this experience before with some of you. Uh, when we lived in New York, we went to the library and we got a book written by a popular Christian author. And it was a children's book about the, the end, about heaven. And, and the, the story was that the captain, who's the Jesus character, uh, ends up marooned on an island with these two boys. And he is able to, to leave, but he's going to leave them on the island. And he says, you're going to stay here. Stay on the beach. Don't go too far into the island where it gets dirty and messy and there's dustiness and there's brokenness. Don't go too far into there. Stay here on the beach. And I'm going to come back after I go to the perfect island, Bluestone, it was called. I'm going to go to Bluestone and you wait and, and wait for me and trust in me and I'll come back and then I'll take you to Bluestone. And as I'm reading the story, I'm having to change the whole story. As I'm telling my kids. So the, the captain, the Jesus character, leaves the two kids there. And he says, okay, I have to go. But while you're here and waiting for me to go and get Bluestone and bring it here, you should be restoring and making this place new. You should be a part of seeing justice and faithfulness uh, and goodness move forward here. And yes, you should look to me and trust in me and, be, and, and find your hope in me that I am bringing Bluestone. Bluestone here, but I will renew this place. That's the picture that we find here in, in Revelation 21, that he's going to renew this place and that now we get to be a part of it. And yes, it's the, we talk about it as the already not yet. God is already at work. It's not yet fulfilled, but he is at work. I am making all things new so that in the midst of all the things that we experience that are not the way that they're supposed to be, and they are many, we can look forward with hope that he is, he is working now to fix those things and he will one day do it completely. And it is a, a helpful reminder that this is for us in all of our mess. It's not just, hey, get on board and, and you, you be the one to figure it all out. And we could go into all the things like, yes, some of the lists in verse eight, like we've lied, we've, we've made mistakes. So why, why are we not included there? By the grace of God, we're part of that messy Jerusalem that is made new. And, and we come not having to pay the price on our own, not having to get it all together so that we can be a part of it. We're those who, in the end, he says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We don't have to pay. This is the grace of God at work in our lives, and we just get to be a part of it and look forward with hope that this is exactly what he's doing. All things brought together. You, you might have looked at the, 
um, the, I forget what it's titled, but the, like, find the, uh, the, the things from the messy liturgical art, the, the seek and find, thank you, uh, the seek and find. Uh, they're little pieces that uh, have come together. You, you can look up here and find different parts, different parts of this that were separate and a bit messier. And, uh, and they've come together uh, and, and we'll, never perceive, uh, we'll never achieve perfection, right? But that's the picture that we're going for here. Now, we're not God, right? So we actually didn't remake those broken mirrors. We got new mirrors. Um, and we didn't actually even bring all those pieces together to, to do this. This is a, a separate piece, yes. Uh, we weren't able to bring those together in quite that clean uh, a way, right? Um, but these things are all just pictures of what God uh, is able to do in and through us, the promise that he brings to us. So that as we experience the mess and the brokenness, that we can hope that he'll draw it all together in beautiful ways. I'm going to share another illustration that some of you have heard before, but I think it's uh, always a good reminder for me. There's a, a great book called Restoring Broken Things written by um, Scotty Smith, uh, pastor, taught one of my seminary classes. Uh, he wrote with Stephen Curtis Chapman, uh, a musician. Uh, Restoring Broken Things talks about God making all things new. Behold, I'm making all things new. And Steph gave me permission to read from her journal, her response to some of the things from that, from that book. The line from the book was this. It was, with the moment glory rises, and that's the picture we find here in these eight verses. The moment glory rises, it's like the passing of labor pain as one holds the newborn child. And this is what Steph wrote in response. Hope. This makes so much sense to me. Thank you, Jesus. Wow, there was so much pain accompanied in all my births. I never want to go through pain. It's all-consuming. Feels like it will never end. It's awful. Feels like it's eating me, consuming me. I cried for deliverance. I thought there was no way out except for death. But the moment, the sweet moment I held them each in my hands, the remembrance of pain was forgotten. Forgotten. What did it matter then? I'd do it a hundred times if each resulted in such a precious end. Three was enough. Uh, oh, what a sweet reminder, tender reminder, that that end will come for me one day. One day, all that ails me, justified or not, will be so unbelievably quickly forgotten. And I will say, who cares? I'd do it all again a hundred times if it meant this incredible, glorious end. Thank you for this reminder of hope in a new way. My prayer is that this passage brings that hope to us in the midst of all the things that we experience, that he is making all things new. And that we can begin, just begin to engage our imagination in a way that sees what he's promised and allows it, allows it to affect us now so that it can be a part, that hope can be a part of both our own just attitude, but the way that we move forward in this world. Seeing those things made new in our family lives and in our church life and in our neighborhood and uh, all over the world, all of creation, all of the cosmos, right? That we get to be a part of that story. So as we are here at the end of the story and we go back next week to the beginning of the story, we're reminded all along that we're invited into the story. The best story ever. It's fun to think about different stories that we read and what it might be like to be a part of it and different characters in the story, whether it's any of those that I mentioned at the beginning or some of your favorite movies or books. But, but here, the greatest story 
is for us to be a part of. And it brings us great hope. Let me pray.